Two percent. Two percent. Two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah. Anything to support local food. Know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there. I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants. BonniePlants.com Hi, how are you? My name is Andrew WK. They say when things are very delicious, it must be Heritage Radio. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, I am currently in the high desert, uh, sitting in the parking lot of La Copine with the restaurateur du jour. <laughs> Happy one year high deserversary, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about the restaurant? Sure. My name is Claire Wadsworth. My wife, Nikki Hill, and I opened this restaurant on September 11th of last year, mm. and it's been going so great. We uh, came out here on Earth Day last year oh. after getting married. We we got married in March of last year. We catered our own wedding like crazy people. But wait, before you, you get to there, I okay. want to know how you met because the story oh. is so perfect. Well, we... You're so practiced at it, too. <laughs> Yes, we met on International Women's Day, March 8th of 2009, and my sister and I used to have these little supper and song nights, we would call it a cabaret, and um, the second dinner that we did, Nikki was the chef, and my band was playing. Uh, oh, okay, what type of band did you, what type of music <laughs> did you play? I was in a band called Goldie Box. Okay. <laughs> it was like a gypsy punk rock band. As with, one does. <laughs> with my sister and my roommate, Steph, who is a drummer, and my sister played bass. Um, she never wore pants on stage. Um, and I played keys and guitar, <laughs> and my sister and I sang together. What was, like, the ritual? Was she, like, okay, like, time to take the pants off? <laughs> no, there was never any pants to begin oh, with. Oh, okay. It was always, like, uh, okay, I guess I'll put tights on over these underwear, or, like, okay, I'll put booty shorts on over my tights. There was never any pants, and it was actually, like, um, kind of her signature, and I always wore, like, gold stretch pants. Okay. Uh, you gotta have a look. So, yeah, so my brother and I are from Philadelphia. What what Get era? Out. What era is this? Okay, so I moved to Philadelphia shortly after graduating from Berklee School of Music. Okay. I graduated in 06. Okay. I graduated in 06. And I moved to New York shortly after that. I was um, living in Brooklyn with um, some of the members of the band Lucius. Love Lucius. And um, Peter Lalish. He was my roomie. And um, my very dear friend Scott Smith, who's a fabulous engineer and producer, said, Hey, uh, for graduation, my parents got me a rental car. And a gas card. Do you want to go on a road trip with me? And I said, fuck yeah. So I jumped in the car and I drove to L.A. Got it. I almost moved to L.A. And then I found out my sister was moving to Philly. And she said, you should come with me. So I flew back. And I moved to Philly to be with my sister. She was like, we need to reunite. We need to be in a band. Let's stick together. Life will be awesome. I mean, we have a running theme of the show. Like when families <laughs> stick together, it's usually great. And so what is your um, partner's background and like her track to Nikki. chefhood? Well, Nikki is total uh, SLC punk. She is born in Tooele, Utah. Okay. 1982. And then she moved to Salt Lake City. And was the MVP of the state of Utah, youngest um, MVP uh, for softball, fast pitch softball. She was a catcher. Okay. So she's always been very competitive and um, likes a big challenge. In order to be a chef, you have to like 
work really fucking hard in long hours. And um, her dad had, like, a batting cage out in the backyard. So she was up at 5 a.m., like, hitting pitches in the morning before she'd go to school. Then she'd have practice, and then she'd come home and do more softball. So she was – she went to school. She got, like, a a – almost full ride to Florida, uh, I think in Tallahassee. I forget. Sorry, Nikki. It was a short-lived um, yeah. time at college. She was there for six months and then dropped out. And she said, I want to go to punk rock shows instead and work at the Hard Rock Cafe. What'd she do at the Hard Rock Cafe? She was a prep cook. Oh, amazing. So... You got to start somewhere. I know. We always say that, like, uh, you know, Julia Child at some point didn't know how to make eggs. No, not so at all. So sometimes you just pass starts at high, make doing like prep and styles at Hard Rock. She's like, oh, throw it away. Yeah, eggshells in yeah. the batter. <laughs> yeah. So Nikki started there. Her parents were like, "You should go to culinary school. Go to Le Cordon Bleu. You know, get out alone. Just do it." And so she did. Um. And she moved to Portland with her girlfriend at the time and went to Le Cordon Bleu. After she graduated, she immediately had, like, an internship at this restaurant called Dragonfish, which is still open in Mm. Portland. Um, And uh, after that, she moved to St. Louis with her girlfriend after getting her U-Haul stolen by a meth addict who hit her car, totaled her car, and stole the U-Haul with everything she ever owned. So... Nikki, that is a punk story. Nikki had to, like, start from scratch over and over and over. And, like, the kitchen was just this place where she could, like, forget about all this crazy shit that was happening to her and just hunker down and, like, bust ass. That's amazing. So, fast forward a mm-hmm. little bit. You two have met. In what, Philly. In Philly. Mm-hmm. What kind of comes next? I mean, so, I mean, did you always dream of opening a restaurant out here? How did that I path mean, begin? I, like, I have always... I mean, musicians just naturally work in restaurants because yeah. the schedule allows you to, like, play shows. And uh, uh, Nikki and I, when we met... So she had moved to Philly to be with her sister, too. So I moved to Philly for my sister, so did Nikki. And when we met at this dinner, we kind of started talking about, like, what we want in life. Immediately, it was like who are you? And I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I live in my girlfriend's like basement. And I'm like, why? <laughs> she's like, we broke up and she's dating this guy. And I'm like, you should live with me. Oh, literally like typical lesbians. Yeah. You haul the second date. <laughs> and so we just spent like every waking minute together, like talking about what we wanted to do. And I'm like, I was born in Sweden. I want to go travel. I want to go to Copenhagen. I want to eat like really amazing food. And, and, and she was working in restaurants, and we just would cook every meal together. We never, like, went out and ate dinner unless we had, like, lots of money. But, like, we cooked every meal together from that day forward. And well, so we just had great conversation. What were some of, the, like, the highlight uh, meals you cooked together? Um, I have to say um, breakfast tacos. Okay. Like, all fucking day. Okay. <laughs> so we lived near a bodega. We lived at 22nd and Carpenter, and there was this bodega on Christian that mm. we would go to. And, like, they had great chorizo. So we'd have chorizo and cheese tacos, like, breakfast, lunch, dinner. I mean, you kind of don't need anything no. more. I mean, like, no. really, like, if you were to, people were to, like, put, like, you know, put them to the test, and be like, I'd be totally fine with that all day. <laughs> Well, cheese, some good, some good chorizo. It's, yeah, it's really and you can nice. always change like the salad that you put on top. Yeah, it's like radish. Oh, the or salsa arugula. can change. Yeah, yeah. But still, you want eggs and cheese and meat yeah. wrapped in some type <laughs> yeah. of starch. Um, 
So then from there, so from like over there cooking, how did you begin to make your way out west? Well, uh, every like six months, Nikki always gets kind of sick of being in one place. So she and I started a food cart in Philly. Oh, what did you serve? We served... Breakfast tacos. Brunch. Oh. How does brunch work as a food cart? Uh, well, that's a great question. We had a griddle. All we okay. had was la plancha. Yeah. And all of the steam tables she turned into like ice baths. Yeah. So we rented our f- friend's food cart. Um, Frosty, DJ Frosty, had a food cart parked in his um, little garden outside of the Standard Tap in Northern Liberty, mm-hmm. second and yeah, uh, yeah um, Poplar. And we served homemade biscuit breakfast sandwiches with like the most amazing like Lancaster bacon, like Amish bacon and like cage free eggs. And Nikki was making ketchup from scratch and we had the hand shredded hash browns and like a potato hash. Uh, we had a griddled banana bread, PB and J. We had like a pie that would rotate very small menu and it was Saturday and Sunday only Mm. from noon to four. Tough hours. <laughs> Tough, Tough hours. hours. Uh, where did you do the the prep? Um, in our kitchen. Yeah. No, I mean we had a commissary, but like on the books, but we didn't use it because <laughs> like we never went there. We yeah. were always at our kitchen, like literally baking, you know, fifty pounds of potatoes in Oof. our like kitchen in the middle of the summer in our second floor apartment, and me shredding like. The ha- basically all I ever did as a prep cook was shred hash browns. That's fine because it world took four hours on a cheese grater. I mean that's that's what the world needs. Also, pro tip we always do: always order your hash browns well done. They don't always do that's it. That's true. When you, if you, every crispy. time you get it, luckily here you don't have to order them well done because they come crispy. That's great. <laughs> um, what was the name of the food cart? It was called La Copine. Oh, oh. So that's oh, where it started. Foreshadow. The birth. Okay. okay. Oh. <laughs> the birth of La Copine. So, yeah, we um, uh, did the food cart for a year and had to, like, make money on top of it because we were only open for eight hours yeah. a week. I was teaching music lessons okay. while we were doing this, and Nikki was making, like, various breads and jams and selling them at little stores. And then we just didn't we weren't really happy because we weren't making that much money and nikki was like i want to go back into a kitchen like a real kitchen like not our fuck kitchen. this <laughs> shit yeah and i was like all right fine so she went back to 13th street working for marcy and val their yeah. empire like and opened a chef de cuisine hominera amazing so she had worked for marcy and val like literally opened barbuzzo with them lolita grocery and so she went back to them and then six months later Minky's like, I want to go. I'm bored. And so I said, do you want to move to California? I want to marry you. Oh. And we can get married in California. This is before they took it back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we're going to take a quick musical break, and then we're going to talk about uh, California um, finding this unbelievable place, all this like, <laughs> remote stretch of highway, and then the type of food and atmosphere you hear. Uh, we'll be right back on Snacky Tunes. One, two, three, four.
waking me up in the morning I know you probably thought about it too Otherwise I'll never leave my oven My arms and legs ever go soft with you Come pick me up in the morning And we can find a hole to crawl into We're still pretending to be lightweight My arms and legs ever grow soft Wow, ooh, ooh Behind your smile is nothing Long hair's a signal to the wandering eye Anytime I'll leave my coffin gladly My arms and legs ever grow soft and die Someone broken into my heart will beat it into my head. Several hours to drive home will fall asleep instead. So, so think it over. Just think it over. Don't let me down. Just think it over. Just think it over. I'll be around. just your garden it's the way you live and there's so much to know but you have help bonnie plants now with bonnie's app homegrown you can learn about veggie and herb varieties track and record your garden with photos and notes share on facebook and twitter and so much more how'd you ever grow without it get homegrown with bonnie plants for iphone and android the more you know the better you can grow with bonnie so, you moved out west because they would let you marry. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you move to first? We moved to L.A. Um, we sold everything we owned. We didn't have any jobs. We didn't have a home. On the way out, we did supper and song to raise money for our move. So, we'd stopped in people's homes, a lot of our family members, mm. and Nikki would shop at the farmer's market and then cook this We'd prep it, and we'd cook this fabulous meal, and then I would play a set. And we'd put a bowl out and tell people to bring their checkbooks and donate to the cause. Because we want to move to California for the dream of maybe one day opening our own restaurant, our own catering company, or being private chef to the celebrities, or like whatever. Did you still have the Golden May stretch pants? I still have them, yes. Okay. But they come wear, out. Okay. <laughs> they come out. Sure. Like, you gave them the full show. They were they were paying for this the full was, show. Yeah, this was more like Claire on the piano, like, being more, like, the more Carol King, like, storyteller vibe. When I play guitar, it's a completely different thing. And when I play piano, it's like, I'm telling more of a story of my life. Got it. And so... 
we had four of those and raised $10,000. Amazing. And we're able to support our first three months in L.A. It's great. And that's it. Which is amazing because <laughs> I think about if we had ten grand out here in the desert, I'm like, we could live for a year off of that. <laughs> we could buy like so we many acres. We could buy like five acres of land I was, for real. We were driving Legit. out here and it was like four ninety nine per acre. And I was like, I feel like there's places in New York that's like $35 per square foot. And I was like, it's just a very different. <laughs> it's so different. So then how did you end up here? And how did you find this space? Well, we were in LA for two and a half years and finally like decided we're going to get married in, in Solvang. And, um, that was March 8th of last year when we got home from our wedding. And I have to mention that our wedding was, um, ceremony was on a Sunday. It was the last day of the weekend. A lot of wine tasting previous, my friend's band, the get down boys, bluegrass band played at a wine tasting room and we catered a, like, Scandinavian smorgasbord, mm. which is the tartine, our ah, dish oh. here. So the tartine is our reconstructed wedding food. Oh, my God. That's Cured amazing. salmon, hard-boiled eggs, arugula salad, pickled cucumbers, radish. I have to go in and try this now. Marble rye, toasted marble rye, and caper cream cheese. By the way, the fact that you have marbled rye on your menu out here... I was like, these people are from the East Coast. I was like, no one's even heard of rye, let alone marbled rye. Well, Nikki's it... whole thing is like, why would I have white or wheat? I, you eat that I every know, day. Oh. Anyway, we don't have time for that. But Yes. Okay, but... so we got back from our amazing wedding in Solvang and Los Olivos in the Santa Barbara wine country and went back to L.A. to our, like, one-bedroom apartment in Mar Vista, and we were just so depressed. <laughs> and, you know, a month later, it's Earth Day, and it is Earth Day today! Woohoo! We, like, say, let's go glamping. And we were like, let's go to Joshua Tree. We've never been there before. Let's go to the park. And we come out, we go to the park, and then we say, oh, my God, let's go find the Integratron. Oh. So we start weaving the back roads... Not coming this main road of Old Woman Springs. We go backwards from the park to the Integratron, and we walk in. Even though it says, don't take back roads and don't come here if you don't have an appointment. We walk in and immediately meet um, Joanne, one of the Who's proprietors. Amazing. Oh yeah, my she's God. incredible. She's been like our spirit guide out here for, yeah. She's the reason why we're here. Oh. So we meet her, and she's like, hello, friends. Do you have an appointment? And I was like, no, we don't. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. We're all booked. Um, can you come tomorrow? And Nikki said, no, I'm a chef, you know, chef life, got one day off, so we gotta go back tomorrow, and she's like, oh, you're a chef, I should tell you, there's a restaurant for sale. No way. And we were like, yeah, right, <laughs> cool, <laughs> like, we live in L.A., like, and, you know, granted, Nikki was working at Scope Italian Roots, and, like, they're like, every restaurant we open, we're taking you with us, like, we would love to promote you to be chef de cuisine. So mm. she had like this path for mm. her there. And I was teaching music lessons. Um, you know, I used to, I, Toby McGuire was one of my students. I teach him how to write songs and play piano. And, you know, we were both like kind of like killing it in LA and just like, literally we said, let's just look at it. And she's like, just look at it. And we ended up sitting with her for an hour and talking about how badly 
the desert needs this. There's these amazing people. Everybody just cooks at home. It's a culinary wasteland. When you drive up 62, you just see like, you know, fast food nation. And she said, this would be an amazing opportunity. So just go check it out. And we drive past and we park in front of this restaurant covered with chain link fence, blinds in the windows. I call the guy. It says for sale, $39,000. Like what? I'm like, hi, um, do you, uh, can you let us into your restaurant? I kind of want to see it. And he's like, oh, can you come back next week? I've dropped the price. It's now 29000 And Nick and I are just like literally looking at each other like, could we really do this? So 10 days later, we had the keys. Unbelievable. And I got a call from him that next weekend. And he said, someone just made an offer for $21.5. i am going to take it unless you put money in my hand. And I said, I will be there tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. with $5,000 cash, our wedding money, mm. to go on a honeymoon to Iceland and Scandinavia. And I gave him $5,000 cash in a Bank of America parking lot, and we wrote a contract in a notebook. Amazing. So what is the type of cuisine, given like the kind of barren landscape? I mean, it's a, it's a very focused menu. I mean, the tartine mm-hmm. obviously has history mm-hmm. for it. The marble yeah. rye, obviously, East Coast, which <laughs> I'm so excited about. But, you know, what kind of, you know, what type of food are you trying to produce out here? And, and equally, is it difficult to find the resources and the produce mm-hmm. to be able to make that menu? No, it's actually like, we, Nikki just has to be really organized. We get one delivery a week. Mm. Um, most of our produce is organic, local, and it's seasonal. It's new American. And everything that's out here, it's like, okay, there's the Italian restaurant. There's the Mexican restaurant. It's like when you're in Canada. There's no such thing as like new American food, like seasonal chef-driven food. And that's Nikki's thing. She's always, I mean, she's, her biggest inspiration is Alice Waters, Chez Panisse. Like, you know, just, we literally read the book of, of Chez Panisse as we were opening this restaurant because we had people stop by here that are like, what kind of food are you going to have? Barbecue? Mm. Like burgers? And we're like, no, like it's going to be new American. What? New, what? New American. Like we're going to have, we're going to be doing brunch food. They're like brunch. What do you mean? And it, like nobody understood it and, until they come in mm. and you can have the Royal Crumpet for $9, a homemade English muffin, yeah. an organic cage-free egg, freshly homemade hollandaise. And Nikki will make it every four hours if she has to. Arugula and our homemade sausage. We grind sausage. Which is all waiting back <laughs> in there for me. What is like the one of the... I mean, so it's been six months? Or s- it's been six months. We opened on September 11th. Um, what is like... What would you Seven. say like one of the biggest misconceptions that you feel that people might have about opening a restaurant out here or people might have about food uh, in this area? I think people overthink it. Um, we, it, if you can just keep it simple and um, keep it fresh and make it really good, people will come back. Everyone told us, you're making a mistake opening in Landers. Why are you opening up there? Because if you look around, there's literally like five houses that you can see. And one is right behind us. Yeah. And it's a shack. Yeah. But it's got a, it's got a nice exercise setup. <laughs> but so, and like, how has the response been? 
Well, we've had some people come in that look at the menu and turn around, but I chase after them. I go to the parking lot and I'm like, hi, I know this is uncomfortable for you. This is like a city menu you're looking at. There's only six items on it. Yeah. Um, what's your budget? What were you looking to spend today? And they're like, well, no more than, I mean, $10. And I'm like, great. Do you eat pork? Do you like eggs? Do you like bread? Come with me. And I order them the Royal Crumpet and they're like, wow, that's, that's the best breakfast sandwich I've ever had. And I'm like, so take this menu and tell your friends. Mm. I mean, but also what's kind of great, you know, the one thing you hear about in New York is like, you don't have any room to experiment. You don't have any room to try things out or no. more importantly, you don't have any so time, expensive. time to grow and establish yourself. I mean... I'm guessing mm -hmm. you own that place or you're on your way to, I mean, mm -hmm. you have freedom. Mm -hmm. So how does that kind of influence what you're doing or how does that influence the way you to set the menu or run the restaurant as like for the long term thinking? Yeah, we, we decided from the very beginning that we wanted to grow the business slowly, period. Mm. And everyone keeps coming in and saying, where are you going to expand and put the patio up and put shading on the patio? And I'm like, well, number one, we only have five employees. And it's really hard to find good quality workers out here. We were so lucky. We have five amazing women that work for us. And we have one dishwasher, two line cooks, and two servers. And until we find someone else who can fit in with that team, we're not expanding. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And we want to perfect every dish. We're going to send out... Like, if anything is ever wrong, we always tell people, like, we'll make it again, or you can order something else. So... What we've learned from all of this and from all of our freedom is that there is so much room to grow out here. Mm. We are closing on May 3rd on the five acres next to this restaurant. Wow. And we hope to acquire the 10 acres that this restaurant sits on. You mean four ninety nine bucks? <laughs> I'm like, you don't even want to know what no, we no, bought no, with no, five no, acres? I don't want to know. Oh, my God. And but so what's we want to have a greenhouse. So when you go to French Laundry and you see that greenhouse yeah. that they just started constructing, I'm like, how long has he been there and why, yeah. he, why is he yeah. only just now building his greenhouse? I'm like, I want that shit, like, next year. I want a greenhouse right here with... Nikki can grow whatever she wants and we can have a La Cofine farmer. Oh, my God. You know? So that's... Like, there's, but we're never going to expand on this building. The size of the building is perfect. All we want to do is have outdoor seating, but that's, you know, four months away. We probably won't do that until the fall. Mm. And realistically, everyone's like, but do it for the summer. I'm like, hell no, we're not ready for that. You know, there's three people cooking. Right. For 700 people a week. Right. 700 people a week. A week. That's great. And also, like, your superstar, amazing guest yesterday, the queen, Kim, Kim Gordon. Kim Gordon was here. I mean, that's kind of like the, that's like the punk rock full, full circle. I know. Of just, like, the, like, most amazing, iconic woman. Nikki, I was like, Nikki, just take one, one loop through the dining room and just, just a nod. And, like, literally they stopped her. The president of Sub Pop Records, Megan, was here, too. Oh, my God. And, like, gave me a hug and... Literally, it was like, you made our day. And I'm like, you made our day. You made our, you made our decades. <laughs> I know. Um, well, I want to thank you. Thank you. For sitting in this car with me. Snacky tunes. Uh, I'm like now dying to go and I have to order the tartine yeah. now. Um, where can people find you? In, uh, Instagram. Instagram yeah, website. LaCopine, LaCopine or on Instagram at LaCopine Kitchen.
Uh, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, we're going to take a quick musical break, and then we'll be back with uh, our next part of our show.
All right, welcome back. We have uh, Nadia Sirota live in studio. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming to see us fresh off the plane. Yes, I'm very fresh off the plane. Very fresh off the plane. But you look, you look great. Sound check sounded awesome. Um, first off, I saw you at Symphony Space, and I was just like pretty floored. Um, you're wonderful. I'm really excited that you're here. Thank you. Um, you're incredibly talented. Um, one of the things that, you know, when reading about you that kind of comes up time and time again is collaboration. Um, I think that, like, uh, you know, a lot of bands that we tend to have on here, like, they're bands, they kind of do stuff, but I think in in your world, collaboration is a big thing. Um, You know, how do you define it in your world, and then, you know, what do you look for in a a partner or partners when you're starting to collaborate? Um, I think probably collaboration is a little bit the secret driving force behind my being a musician in general like it's the the coolest thing in the world about being a musician is you get to meet all these people and not just meet them sort of work within the context of their brain somehow which is really crazy um so the thing that i do which is play the viola like has this hundreds of years old tradition and the strange the strange thing that's like a little bit different about that from say being in a band is that i i always work with a composer i'm not writing music so i need to have a composer whether that's you know brahms or nico muley um the idea is that i'm sort of trying to figure out what somebody else's idea is what's good about it and then be the translator for that um, person to an audience in real time, which is really a complicated process. Like mm-hmm. when you're reading a book, there is no performer between you and the author. The author writes it and you sort of perform it to your head, to yourself. When you're listening to an album of music by a band, they're performing, but they also created it. And it's, there's just like one extra special, very strange step in like classical music that's not always in other types of music. Although Beyonce, people write her songs all the time, then she performs them, and then there's a producer, and that's a whole nother complicated uh, situation. But I think with her, there's like one way that that is going to end. And even when you see it live, there's like, I mean, maybe there might be like an, some extra measures for like live breakdown dance routines, but it's really, you know, Crazy in Love is going to be Crazy in Love, unless it's like a revamp, but it's like a very specific thing. Um, when you're reinterpreting, you know, some of the masters, like you said, I mean, it's so open to interpretation, probably on any given night. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it totally is. But um, going back to your initial sort of collaborator question, like, what I have found is that if I meet somebody who says that he or she is a composer, um, and also that person seems awesome and has tons of great things to say and is fun to hang out with, eight times out of ten, like, their music is also really interesting to me. Mm. Um, and it really sort of follows that, you know people who are good at expressing themselves are good at expressing themselves in a ton of different ways. There's also tons of introverted composer people. Um, and that's also a fascinating different thing. It doesn't mean that they're not interesting to hang out with. It's, it's, it's all very interesting. Um, but yeah, for me, music is just, um, a series of like projects one after another. And if I can possibly grab people that I like to hang out with and make stuff with them such that we get to travel around the world and play that stuff and then also eat and drink in those places in the world that's a very lovely life and and part of sort of what I'm pursuing I think I mean I think you could tell that at the symphony space performance like that's what was going on was like a bunch of friends who filled a bunch of different roles were on stage together doing something and it was very much it was the first time that I was like I wonder what like a classical 
uh, music performance after party is like when I was watching you on stage. There's, I mean, we we have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, but it was like the first time I saw. I was like, oh, these are friends who are kind of existing in a sphere that you know maybe is not as immediate to like you know like an arcade fire or something like that, but very much like a thriving and beautiful community of of people who are very interdependent on each other. Yeah, and I think actually that's a little bit of a lovely thing about this generation. Like my dad is also a composer, mm. um, and his generation when he was writing music in the seventies and eighties, there was this kind of gross backstabby environment from composer to composer and there were people that were writing like there, there was like philip glass who was writing minimalist music and then there were people who were writing really intense like high modernist music that was sort of very craggy and very math based um and the math based people thought that the minimal people were like dumb and affected <laughs> and the minimal people thought the math people were like writing math and not not anything with heart and it just got really gross and really really antagonistic for a while um and even so, there was like a lot of sort of posturing and pushing each other away and trying to feeling like there was like a limited number of possibilities for composers. And that, so that's the kind of new music environment that I actually grew up in. Mm. And I think a lot of people did that are like in their 30s or whatever. Um, and I think that has sort of given way to this very supportive community of people who are just sort of like, let's all make as good stuff as we can and try to help each other out. Because, you know, this generation, to, to paraphrase um, Alex Ross, has been no, known that classical music is dead since before we were born, right? <laughs> so that's not interesting. It's right. like more interesting to figure out um, who is making good stuff and like how to communicate that stuff to a larger audience. And uh, that's like what I do with my life all across the board, whether it's radio or, or playing viola. When you meet someone, a um, uh, composer, do you ask them to maybe commission something for you specifically? Do you ask to see like what they're kind of hiding, or like how you know, or how does it kind of work when you when you find someone who you think is rad that you want to hang out with and play music with? I say, how can I listen to your music? And then hopefully, I try to listen to their music. Um, sometimes, if it's three in the morning and I've had enough to drink, I'll just ask them to to write me a piece. Oh. Um, and then, like, actually, that's great because they'll say yes because it's three in the morning and they've also had a lot to drink. Yeah. And then you just have to follow up with an email. You yeah. have to follow up and make sure they do it. They're like, is it like a three or t- three or two a.m. timestamp? Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, no, no. The email is the next day. Oh, okay. Because the thing is, you're not a drunk if you do the things that you say you're going to do when you are drunk. I have lived my entire life that way. This is very important. Yeah. Um, so this is how the classical music world works. Yeah. It's very uh, key. Um, which key is it in? Oh. <laughs> um, but so, uh, and then from that, from that process of collaboration, I mean, where do you, where do you sit in it? I mean, and obviously you have such a wide range of collaborators are some like, okay, leave me alone. I'm going to come back. I'm going to give you something or I want you in the room because here's like you know, a melody and I, you know, I'll explain like, you know, what do you prefer or what is, or is there any type of norm? Yeah. That's the, that's kind of the coolest thing about working with all these different people is that there are some people who it's very much like they go off into the woods and they agonize over every single little detail and they give me back a score that is basically done. Um, and then it's my job to sort of interpret that. And maybe I changed three little tiny things, but that's, that's the process. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are, more interested in sort of the types of things that I might come up with. So, for example, when I worked with um, Valger Sigerson or Ben Frost, like they'll have written some kind of expansive track that I'll then listen to in headphones and improvise like 14 passes over. Then they'll take all that material, pull out the stuff that they like, then we'll re-notate that, and then that'll become my part in the future. So it's it's kind of a cool thing where I am giving some artistic input, but um, at the end of the day, it's sort of their like in the box assembly that is the thing that creates the piece 
Um, there are people who I've just played around a bunch of times and they're inspired by that and then they'll come back with something. There hmm. are people who write something but then the second we get in a room together we change a whole bunch of stuff um, either to make it more idiomatic or to make it land more in the way that they were thinking. Because here's the thing. The viola is actually like a um, 17th century piece of technology. <laughs> and the way that it's put together is super quirky and weird. And actually, like to be a composer, you're not born with all of this innate knowledge of like where the break in a clarinet is and how to play the trombone and what how to play the viola and all of this stuff about like how the instrument actually is put together and how to write idiomatically for it is learned um so the best thing you can do as a young person who wants to write for people is just talk to them and, ex and like have them show you what they can do and experiment with the instrument and figure it out because i think some you know there there is music that just exists as vibration of sound in space as like an ideal and that's really cool um, and getting that onto this piece of technology from the 17th century is a really complicated process. But I mean, there's something to be said about not understanding the medium and pushing it in ways because you're not restrained by, you know, the, well, it's like, well, we can't actually do that on the instrument. It's like, yeah, but what if you could? And that kind of pushes it forward. Definitely. But there's always, there's always you know, the line there, right, where, where I want to make sure that if you're writing something that's meant to sound easy and free and whatever, and it's like the hardest thing in the world, that's, that's an incongruous like mm. quality. Right. So, um, it's, it's about basically, I mean, this is what I find the most interesting about working with composers actually is just trying to figure out where they're coming from, where that idea is coming from, what that idea needs to be. And if they're pushing me to do something I've never done before, I'm, I'm, and it, and it works and it makes the music make sense. And it's something that I can really embody. That's like the most exciting moment ever. And if they're, if they're doing something that's accidentally really, really impossible, it's great to figure out a way to make that not true. Okay. Let, let's hear something. Cool. What are you gonna play first? Um, the first thing I'm going to play is a piece called Etude three. This is actually talks. This is perfect segue. You're brilliant at making segues. <laughs> um, uh, I went to Juilliard from 2000, 2000 to 2006. Um, and while I was there, uh, one of my composery colleagues was a guy called Nico Muley, who's now doing great. He uh, wrote an opera for the Metropolitan Opera and has done a bunch of fancy we, things. We adore him. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. the best. So he's one of my closest friends. Um, and when we were both in college, he wanted to figure out how to write for strings, and we had a really great sort of relationship about that. And one of the things that happened early on is I said, your music is really hard to play on the viola in these really specific ways. And he said, well, is it is it harder than Paganini? And I said, no. He was like, great, why don't we figure out how to make you learn how to do that stuff? Um, so ever since then, we've been doing a series of etudes, little studies for viola and electronics. Um, and I'm going to play the third of them. It's actually the fourth one, because there's one and one A, and then there's two, and this is three. So it's etude number three, which is actually the fourth etude that he's written. Great. Okay. Let's do it. Thank you. 
So it's not often that we have a fellow radio host on the show. So you do the show, Meet the Composer. Um, what is, or how did that come about? What is the, uh, the uh, idea behind the show? Um, the idea behind the show is that I find composers to be some of the most fascinating people that I know. Um, and also, I think your average human being thinks about composers never. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's sort of like a trying to find a way into people's music via who they are as human beings which mm. if you think about pop music like what do you know about lady gaga before i mean even before you hear her music you know something of her um and it's very strange that in classical music we don't even think about that so um not to sort of hype up the the myth of these people but it's cool to sort of meet them and figure out that they're human beings um and from my perspective if you're somebody who has not listened to a ton of classical music in your life it makes way more sense to start listening to classical music via someone of your generation. There's going to be some kind of like vernacular thing to grab onto there. Um, because we all listen to, you know, this, we watch the same movies and watched MTV and like all this stuff. There's like something in the music of our time that is going to be something you can grasp onto. Um, so it's like, a, I'm trying to create some sort of gateway vehicle for cla- new classical music listeners. Uh, at the end of like an episode, um, like what do you feel that you or what would you like to accomplish? I want somebody to be like, holy shit or holy whatever. I don't I don't know how how much I can talk uh, uh, in bad words on this show. You can. It's, uh, it's Internet radio. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want people to want to hear more of this music. Um, and in fact, after every show, which is like sort of an hour long documentary style feature with a lot of sound, like a ton of sound design. The idea is that as, as the interview sort of happens, we weave in elements that we're talking about. So it's music they're listening to when they were kids, music they hate, what their teacher was writing, you know, <laughs> all this other stuff. Um, so by the time you're listening to music by these people, you've heard a little bit about the creative process, which is always, I mean, everyone deals with that. It's amazing. Um, and uh, you want to hear more. So we do like an hour long feature on every uh, composer and then we do a bonus track because it's sort of talk format. It's it's a radio show about music designed to go on talk radio formats. So we can't actually play more than like 
three or four minutes out of music out in the clear. So we give a bonus track, which is just like basically pure music with a tiny little bit of production. Oh, that's that's pretty great. Um, is there any one particular episode that you feel for that's a good gateway in for people who think about composers never? Sure. Uh, if you just heard this show and you just heard that piece I played, um, the episode 10 is about Nico Muley. Oh, perfect. Um, so that would be a really nice place to start. Um, what is it about? I mean, he's really kind of jumped also to the fray as well. I mean, I think you, you two kind of exist in a similar space where you stepped out from like the usual place that composers slash uh, uh, musician hold in that world. What do you think it is about your two approach that has allowed you to to do that? Um, I'm not sure I can speak from. That's the really strange thing I was about to say. I'm not sure I can speak for me, but I would say for Nico, which is a very <laughs> strange thing to say. Um, but you know, as somebody who can sort of observe him, he is by far one of the most hardworking, energetic, and interesting people I've ever met. Um, mm. Obviously, we're close friends, so that's I'm I'm super biased and completely in the tank. Um, but it's cool to see somebody work really, really, really hard um, and also have an incredible amount of innate talent. And I feel like that's something that people respond really well to. Plus, he's completely one of the funniest people I've ever met. Mm. Um, I think uh, also he's just a very gifted collaborator. And when it comes to sort of the music world, it really, I mean, I, I talk about this in classical music, but I think across the board, it's really about collaboration and about sort of working with all these amazing musicians. And if you're somebody who's just gifted at finding people and connecting with them, I think it's you're going to have a slightly easier way through um, cool. Can we hear another song? Sure. Um, uh, so this next piece is actually by um, another longtime collaborator, Valgir Sigerson. Valgir um, got his sort of uh, probably the the he's most well known for his work with Bjork. So he did he worked on the Medulla album, um, and uh, is just a very interesting composer and producer. Um, and he was the first person who, for me really took an electronic track and made it breathe and sound human. I sort of, when I was a kid, every time I heard, you know, MIDI or synthesizers or stuff, like, I, it, it seemed like it had this very um, mechanical edge to it. Uh, and obviously it did. Um, and now there's, like, something wonderful about that, too, and I, I found beauty in it. But when I was younger, it really turned me off because I think something beautiful about... Um, you know, playing an instrument like the viola is it doesn't, you know, I, I don't really make the exact same sound two times in a row. It's it's a human weird instrument. Um, and Valgir can add that type of an element to um, electronic music in a way that I find completely bonkers beautiful. Um, so we worked together on a dance piece a couple years ago called The Architecture of Loss. Uh, and I'm going to play a track from that, which is called The Crumbling. Awesome. Uh, live on Snacky Dunes.
Every uh, instrument tends to have a story. Do you have a good one on how you got your viola or where it came from? Um, I was borrowing a viola um, that was on loan. Uh, so basically, this is a really crazy profession because um, these instruments basically cost as much as cars and in some cases as much as like way more than cars <laughs> um so sometimes you have to sort of to have a fancy instrument you need a fancy person to own it like you can there can be you know a two million dollar violin that a fancy person owns because it's a good investment and then they lend it to a, an actual musician um which is a little bit of a complicated situation but anyway so i had a, a slightly fancy thing on loan from a fancy person um and then i mean is there a terror all the time I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> um, but I had a fancy thing on loan for a fancy person, and then the stock market didn't do well, and the fancy person wanted to uh, not have that money tied up in one thing, took it away, uh, and I had seven months to find an instrument, which is like a slightly terrifying thing. Um, and so the, there's two things that happen with instruments. There's like antique value, and then there's sort of musical instrument value. And if you buy an old instrument, there's just the antique value can get through the roof. There are amazing modern um, makers that, uh, I mean, it's an incredibly old, you're, you're using entirely hand tools. There's like, it's just a really amazing craft. And this is an a instrument made in 2002 by a wonderful modern maker um, out of Ann Arbor, Michigan called Greg Alf. Okay. Uh, so it's, you know, cheaper because it is brand new, but it's also super awesome and I love it and it makes me very happy. 
Um, how many years do you feel like it took for before it like really opened up? I mean, it's, it continues to open up. It, it literally sounds better every day, which is super cool. That's awesome. And it, it's sort of forming to the way that I play it, and it's kind of evolving. And um, it's just a, it's a cool, it's like a really close friend of mine. I mean, no one can see us, but we're like all lovingly <laughs> staring at your view. We're just like, keep like, oh, oh does it know we're talking about? <laughs> it totally knows. Yeah. It totally knows. Um, one of the last things I want to talk about is that, you know, I, I think a comedy said it's like, um, you know, classical music was dead before you were born. Um, uh, you know, I, I think with you, with Nico, and a, a lot of the composers you're talking about, especially, and I think Bjork is also a really good um, uh, musician who has brought classical music into her work, and obviously Arcade Fire, and, you know, so many, you know, strings. I, I'm a sucker for strings, like, just have been from, like, Rachel's growing up and all, all those bands, you know. What type of, you know, kind of advice or what kind of, like, you know, encouragement do you give to young kids when they're trying to, like, kind of pick a path from, like, you know, pop or rock and to be like, no, classical, that's where you want to... That's that's where the the goodness is. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that I do that takes up a large portion of my life is I'm in a, a group called Y Music, which mm-hmm. is a chamber sextet, um, and we um, have sort of a double life. On one hand, we work with composers and we make make them write us music. That is the same kind of thing where we're writing we're playing chamber music for classically people, um, but we also serve as a kind of ready made collaborative unit for bands and songwriters. And so through that, um, we just came off a tour with Jose Gonzalez. We've worked a lot with uh, like Shara Warden um, and uh, Annie Clark and all sorts of cool people. Um, And one of the things that's been really kind of cool about that process actually has been then teasing all these songwriters, teasing sort of classical concert music out of them. So for Annie Clark, for example, St. Vincent, um, we, you know, worked with her a few times and then she decided she wanted to make a, uh, or we like commissioned her to write us a piece of chamber music um, and the process for that was she gave Rob Moose, our um, violinist and guitar player, like 64 little tracks that she had made in Logic. And it was like not quite a piece yet. And so we worked really in- uh, really intensely with her to sort of take all of these little ideas and, and form it into a piece of chamber music. And now that's like one of our most popular pieces that we play of concert music, which is really cool. I think that music people, people that are thinking creatively about music... Um, tend to be some of the most open-minded people that I know. And so, you know, just because you are working in sort of like a songwriting medium doesn't mean you're not going to be excited about writing chamber music. So actually this group came together because most of us were playing with Sufjan Stevens at a certain point and um, and the National and and doing all this stuff where people kept on employing orchestral instruments. Um, And then those people, so Sufjan and Bryce Desner from The National, all those people have ended up writing us a bunch of concert music as well. Um, And I just think it's a super interesting time for for creative people on all sort of sides of that little um, classical music, non-classical music fence. Awesome. Um, And then last question is, any projects on the horizon that we should be... uh, aware of or keeping our ears open for performances, tours? Yeah. Um... Uh, Why music's going back on the road with Ben Folds uh, in a couple weeks, which will be fun, and it's always a, a raucous good time. Um, but I'm, I love a good Ben Folds concert, right? Like he's so fun. He's I know. Amazing. I mean, I feel like it's an eye roll, but like it's definitely like it's going to be like it's a good time. It's such a good time. He's a really great person, and he is the most um, present on stage of like almost anyone I've ever worked. And the with. dude can play. He can super play, yeah. and he can and he makes up songs like every show, so you never really know what's going to happen. It's very cool. Um, and then I'm releasing two albums this fall, which is crazy. Why not? Yeah, yeah. totally. Whatever. <laughs> um, 
one of them is a viola concerto by Nico Muley uh, that uh, we recorded with the Detroit Symphony. Um, and that'll be really cool. The other one is this piece, Tessellatum, by the Irish composer Donica Dennehy, um, which is for multi-tracked viola and viola da gamba. Viola da gamba is like an even ancienter <laughs> instrument, which is like a fretted cello that has no end pin. Um, and Donica does this thing where he likes to toggle back and forth between equal temperament, which is like how we tune a piano, and just intonation, which um, if you can think about like church bells, when you hear church bells, it's an incredibly complex sound with all these crazy overtones. Um, so he goes back and forth between tuning equal temperament and then tuning to the overtone series. Um, so it's this super crazy, rich, multi-tracked thing with four violas and 11 vi- bass viola de gambas. And because the gamba is like a bright instrument, the lowest sounds are super bright and the highest sounds, which are the viola, are super, super dark. And you're toggling between just intonation and um, and uh, equal temperament, and it is just the coolest piece I've ever heard. It's so awesome. It's like a 38 minute long piece. So that's that's the other record. Okay. And uh, if people want to find you, learn more about you, listen to your radio show. Uh, where can they find you? Where can they go? NadiaSarota.com. Bang. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, big thank to our food guests today. Uh, shout out to Mom, Dad, Berlin. Darren Hanna. Um, what are you going to take us out with? Uh, this is a piece by Marcos Balter, um, who is a Brazilian New Yorkan composer. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it's called Oot, and it's acoustic. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>